Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. On today's show, we're exploring pathways of our shared economic future. First, Sujit Das discusses his latest book, The Age of Stagnation, Why Perpetual Growth is Unattainable and the Global Economy is in Peril. Das has a background in banking with Commonwealth Bank, Citigroup, and Merrill Lynch and has written textbooks on derivatives and complex financial products, giving him an insider's perspective on the financial system and the outlook for our global economic future. He outlines his view on why the economic growth boom of the post-World War II era is unlikely to repeat itself in the coming decades, reshaping the contract between governments and their citizens. Then, in the second part of today's show, we talk with Michael Hudson about his new book, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy. In Michael Hudson's view, the ongoing struggles you face to make ends meet are not a reflection of your lack of talent or drive but the only possible outcome of fighting the push for unearned income by the global elite, which destabilizes our economic future. This is episode number 91 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. Enjoy the show. I think the last probably 50 or 60 years were quite odd in terms of the longer run economic history of the world. And I think we now face a series of challenges which are sometimes financial and sometimes non-financial, but they're linked. And I would list the challenges as number one, financial challenges and economic challenges, which are built around the fact of excessive debt. Now, to give you an idea of how much debt the world has, roughly the world has debt as measured against GDP, which is everything we produce in goods and services in a year, of about three times, 300%. Now, if you have interest rates of, say, 3% on average, that means the global economy has to grow by roughly 9% in nominal terms, which is real growth plus inflation, just to service it. And that has become an overwhelming problem to the point where, generally speaking, policymakers and most people have decided it's just too hard and they just now ignore it. But these things can't be ignored. The second thing is that not only did we borrow, 
but we also promised ourselves in terms of entitlements for various government services, things like aged care and health care, which were not fully paid for. And these will have to be paid for over the next 20 or 30 years. And to give you an idea of what that does to debt, in the United States of America, their total government debt is about 18, 19 trillion. But if you add all these unfinanced obligations that the government has, that would go to about 40 trillion. So we have these financial problems, number one. Number two, we have resource constraints. People forget that we talk a lot about energy, which obviously is very important for all of us because we're pretty much a fossil fueled and energy driven society. But there are a whole other series of things, which is things like water, food, which face certain constraints. Now, to put that into perspective, a gallon of fuel in your car, you can probably burn that in half an hour or an hour. But people forget that it took 10 tons of organic matter which was compressed under enormous pressure and heat for several millennia to create that one gallon of fuel. So it's not going to be made again, certainly not in the lifespan of the human race. The second thing is, if you look at water, every year our water consumption is rising at a rate which requires roughly a new Rhine River. And I don't know about you and me, but they're not baking Rhine Rivers every year. And the last issue is food. If you look at actually the amount of arable land in the planet, which is about 3.4 billion acres, that has not changed very significantly for 30 or 40 years. In fact, it's shrinking because of essentially the uh, problems of climate change and so forth. And we have to increase our food production by roughly 50% in the next 20 or 30 years to feed a larger population, but also to meet their requirements for different types of food, because as people get richer, they want more protein, which requires more production facilities. And obviously, we haven't even talked about the environmental issues, which is the climate change issue, which, you know, the planet is now full of fact-resistant humans. And so basically, we don't want to even acknowledge that. But at a minimum, those extreme weather conditions we're experiencing has impact on the world in terms of costs, in terms of insurance, in terms of ability to produce food and other things. And there is a whole series of other problems, which is things like the demographics of aging, the fact that productivity and innovation improvements have flattened off. And we now also have a whole series of issues which are not unrelated to what I've been talking about, which is geopolitical uncertainties, some of which is going to become more and more heightened, things like fights over food, fights over water security, fights over energy security. So all of these things combined are things that we have to actually confront. But the, really, the major problem that the species seems to have developed, which is kind of interesting, which I think is the thing that dooms us to the age of stagnation, is the fact that we do not want to firstly confront this, but more importantly, we actually have a model of dealing with this now, which is kind of productive. And this is what we loosely call the extend and pretend model, which is we tend to defer problems. We tend to push them into the future. For instance, in financial terms, the whole model of quantitative easing, low interest rates, government spending does not actually solve the underlying problems but it basically defers that. And we've seen that in other areas. And the most notable 
is in things like dealing with the environmental problems and the climate change summits basically tend to defer the problem rather than deal with it. So all we're doing is piling these problems up. And as we do that, the problems get bigger. And eventually, all of these factors conspire to effectively make it more difficult for us to generate those periods of economic growth, which, to be honest, if you look at economic growth is not really essential unless you want constantly improving living standards and also unless you have these problems of debt, etc., which have to be dealt with. So that is basically what affects us and to some extent traps us into this period of stagnation. So you were saying that as fact-resistant humans, we tend to defer these issues rather than confronting them head-on. And I go to conferences and hear speakers say, well, we're heading to 9 billion humans. We're going to have all of these highly urbanized megacities in China and Brazil and other places. And so that's the world we need to prepare for, where not only do we see the kind of growth in emerging markets that we've had in the past, but it's going to accelerate in the future. And that seems to be the kind of narrative that's been at places like the World Economic Forum in the last few years. And so you're saying that we're heading toward an entirely different world. What are really the implications of an age of stagnation? And how long would you see something like that last? Well, coming back firstly to the what I would call the Davos man narrative. The Davos man narrative in their sort of really weird way believes that growth is a perpetual thing without really examining what actually drives growth. And I think the fundamental thing that you've got to do is to drill down into what drives growth. And I think there's four or five factors, some of which you just mentioned. One is population. And the most interesting thing is that people seem to have lost sight of the fact that while the Earth's population is going to go to 9 billion, it is important to keep in perspective that in the 20th century, the population of the Earth doubled twice. And that's what drove growth. Because despite the prattlings on of economists and business people, most of the growth actually comes from more people. Because people need you know, shelter, they need food, they need water, they need education, they get married and have children of their own. All of that drives growth. So in the 21st century, firstly, the world's population will not double even once. And that 9 billion that you were talking about has several implications. The first is that 9 billion has actually been downgraded from around 10 billion by the United Nations development authorities. And basically, people are not reproducing at the same rate. Their fertility rates have dropped. I was looking at inputs to climate scenarios from the late 90s and early 2000s, and the upward end was even 15 and 16 billion. And all of the more recent scenarios have had to downgrade that because of lower fertility rates. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. But then you look at the 9 billion and then you ask a series of different questions. Firstly, is that even environmentally sustainable in terms of the carrying capacity of the planet itself, which is an interesting question in itself. But then you ask another question, which is where that growth is going to come from. Most of that growth is coming from poorer nations in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of South Asia and a little bit in Latin America. 
And the problem is they don't actually contribute to economic activity and growth to the same extent because to a large extent they need transfers from richer countries to basically actually meet their living requirements. So the population numbers that people keep throwing around as a mechanism for why the world is going to grow is actually not necessarily what Davos man thinks. But the other thing which is quite hilarious is I've been around businesses most of my life. And whenever they talk of countries like China, I'm always reminded of actually listening to a, a businessman in a consumer products firm. And he was espousing his company's strategy for China. And I basically said to him, well, why do you think China will be such a successful market for your products? He said, there are a billion Chinese. I sell deodorant. There are now two billion extra armpits. <laughs> and I thought that was a rather simplistic view of why he was going to succeed. But given that body odor may not be as important a thing to eliminate among poorer people. There was an interesting question of whether they were going to actually be able to afford his product and whether culturally they were concerned about this in the first place. All of these things seem to be irrelevant. And Davos Mann, I think, spends a lot of time with these very simplistic formulas which appear on the surface to be very persuasive, but in reality, I have not seen them to be persuasive. So that's population. The second source of growth is new markets. And I think people forget that over the centuries, what has grown the planet is new markets, which initially was colonial expansion. The world opened up new frontiers. We went to the new worlds and for better or for worse, we conquered, raped, pillaged and plundered. But that added more humanity to the global trading system. And more recently, I'll give you an example of that, which actually has to do with places like China. After about the middle 1980s, and particularly after the emblematic fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, we added a huge amount of humanity to the global trading system. And that created a huge impetus for the last 15, 20 years of growth. Now, that was a one-off. That's not going to be repeated. Today, other than North Korea, I think almost every country on the planet is to varying degrees integrate into the global trading system. So unless we're going to trade with the Martians or the people from Venus, it's going to be pretty difficult to expand the trading links that we have. Then there is the issue of innovation and productivity, which is an entirely different topic. But the type of innovation we now have is, if you listen to people like Robert Gordon from Northwestern University, is certainly not on the scale of the second industrial revolution of the 19th century, when things like electricity, internal combustion engines, you know, entertainment and communications devices, rearranging hydrocarbons in terms of petroleum, all of that was created. And the final one is the last spurt of growth, which is the last 30 years or so, was pretty much driven by debt. So what we were doing is bringing forward consumption by borrowing to be able to spend money today. And that growth in debt, which if you actually look at it over, say, a longer time horizon, has not been seen since the Napoleonic Wars, and certainly not outside of wartime, has underpinned growth. And that's actually a source of problems now rather than a solution. And there are other problems that we've talked about before. So I'm not sure where the policymakers come up with, I suppose, the thesis that the bells are tolling all is well. And frankly, I think, you know, 
there is a great, and I'll say something really amusing. The New York Times reviewed Age of Stagnation very negatively, and the reviewer basically was upset that the book contained, in his words, a blizzard of facts. The fact of the matter is the facts were just actually inconvenient to his worldview. But the fact of the matter is also that the truth does not much depend on your ability to stomach it. Yeah, you bring up that point that as humans who want to deny the facts that you put forward in your book and deny the broader context, as you go through your book, it gets harder and harder to make an argument like what I hear all the time when I'll say to friends or fellow college professors, something like, well, I don't think we're going to grow as much as we did over the last 50 years. And they come back and they say, well, we have amazing new technologies on the horizon, custom drugs, 3D printing, amazing innovations in nanotechnology and quantum computers that will drive this next phase of growth. How do you respond to people when they put that forward. You mentioned Robert Gordon and this idea that putting, say, the power grid or automobiles out there led to this massive transformation in our way of life. Other people think that a further transformation of life is coming and that will drive growth. Well, I think the interesting thing is I always, when people put forward propositions, I always ask the question, what underlies the proposition? And if you look at this faith in technology, It's essentially a process of elimination, which is everything else isn't working. So what do we actually put up? We put up technology. And the other thing, which I think is very important in the area of environment, what politicians and policymakers all want to do is basically find a solution which is entirely painless. And the whole thing is that technology, in their view, actually offers that. And that's the underlying logic. So let's now unbundle the technology argument. This is the argument of the third, and now according to Davos Man anyway, the World Economic Forum says we're in the fourth industrial revolution. Right. That was the name of the book that was released recently, which a lot of people have been chattering about, the Davos Man. Absolutely. And let's now unbundle that. The first thing is, one of the things that we've discovered is the computing revolution which really started in the 50s and 60s, has not been as significant for productivity and for actually growing the economy as most people thought. And if you just sort of dig underneath that, it's really important to look at why. And the reasons are actually blindingly obvious if you think about it for a while. The first thing is it wasn't actually a radical new change. It took existing processes and made them more efficient. So it was about really actually changing the mechanism rather than changing the essential way we did things. Now, I'll give you the comparison that I always like, which is you look at the difference between the world before internal combustion engines, which is dependent on horses and basically wind power or human power to something which is now taking hydrocarbons and propelling things much more fast with much greater power. And that's just a quantum change compared to taking a process of, say, typing something and putting it onto a computer and then basically using word processing software. It's completely different. The scale is completely different. And the scale is different because, firstly, the efficiency with which you do that, moving from human or animal power or wind power, to hydrocarbons is just an incremental leap. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is the 
crucial thing that most people don't want to actually focus on is modern societies are built on 60 to 70% consumption. And that requires people to have jobs, hopefully good, well-paying jobs with security, and which provide the income and the disposable income for people to be able to consume. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look at what is now happening in the world compared to, say, things like the internal combustion engine, and let's take cars. Cars not only created cars, they created a vast array of ancillary industries ranging from the suppliers who made different parts and different things, the entire supply chain for the fuel and the distribution of the fuel for service stations and so forth. And it also created the infrastructure of things like roads, which employed vast numbers of people. Now, you contrast that to the computing revolution is it doesn't seem to do that. And I'll give you a couple of stats, which people like to ignore. I'm into blizzards of facts, basically. So, you know, I'm fact-based, unfortunately. I suffer from Asperger's, so it makes me unable to make arguments based on truthiness. So have a look at the facts. The facts are, if you look at gross value added in the US economy, technology, including manufacturing of hardware, is less than 10%. The second thing is, if you actually look at the employment, it's less than 10%. Only about half a percent of people in the United States are employed in industries which were created in the last 15, 20 years. Most people are still in traditional work. So what it's doing is it may be increasing efficiency, but it's not actually creating the massive amounts of employment. And you look at, for instance, a couple of areas which are worthwhile, things like the sharing economy. That's in fact detracting from employment because it's putting people in certain professions out of work. And to some extent, that actually detracts from the actual process that drives the economy. This is not a new argument. This is a very old argument because there's a wonderful anecdote about Walter Rothauer, who was the head of the United Auto Workers from the post-war era to about the 1970s. And in the 1950s, he went along to, I think it was a Ford manufacturing plant where they were putting in automation in the form of robotics. That's how old robotics actually is. And the manager of the plant looked at Walter Rothauer and said, look at those machines. How are you going to get them to pay the union dues? And Rothauer turned around and looked at him and smiled and said, how are you going to get them to buy your cars? (laughs) And that is actually at the hub of the problem with innovation. And the other thing about the innovation, which also people tend to prefer to ignore, and I'll take what is now ubiquitous, which is smartphones. And if you look at smartphones, everybody sort of says, oh, how terrific they are. The fact of the matter is, smartphones aren't that smart. They're actually a cannibalistic or a displacement of technology. And the crucial thing about that is this. If you actually look at what a smartphone embodies, it's actually robbing a whole bunch of products or destroying them. Things like mobile phones, things like you and I probably remember the age of personal digital assistants and things like the then very fashionable Palm Pilots and so forth that people used to have. Right. Replaced cameras, low-end cameras are dead. It's replaced music players, things like MP3 players and Walkmans. It's replaced watches, low-end watches. These have all disappeared. So when you look at the revenue contribution 
and the actual contribution to value added of a smartphone, you've got to start to deduct all of these. I've actually bothered to do this. And then you think smartphones aren't as significant in the greater scheme of things. It's very good for Apple. It's very good for Samsung. But it's very bad for BlackBerry, and it's very bad for Sony, and it's very bad for all of these other companies. And so it's not innovation in the sense of creating vast new industries. And the other thing underlying this is a very important change in the funding model. And if you actually look at the funding model of technology and innovation, it's changed. Historically, governments have played a much, much bigger role. And they've been very patient venture capitalists. And people actually forget that the internet is actually a creation of government. And to a large extent, it was for defense purposes as much as anything else, as well as scientific research at CERN in Switzerland that drove that. It's also important to remember that the Google algorithm was funded, I think, by a National Science Foundation grant. So these things were done, and to a large extent, the private sector benefited because essentially it was transferred at no cost or minimal cost to the private sector. Today, the actual innovation doesn't work like that. It actually works around a completely different set of principles. What it does is you have venture capitalists and angel investors who are basically investing. And what they're interested in is not creating these vast new industries, with a few exceptions. Musk seems to be wanting to be the new Henry Ford in some respects. But there are no Henry Fords among them. What they want to do is create disruptive innovations, which are actually low quality, cheaper versions of existing products, which annoy an incumbent. So basically what they do is try to get the incumbent to buy them out or essentially then IPO them float the shares to the public because everybody thinks in a growth style world, this is going to be the newest, biggest, bestest thing and basically exit. So they don't really have the patience to build these long run industries, creating vast infrastructure or creating the vast amounts of employment and particularly high paid employment that's necessary. And one of the great things that say the motor car industry did, where Charlie Shaken, who's a very well-known labor economist, once said, is that what rolled off the production lines in Detroit wasn't cars. It was the entire American middle class. Mm. That's a really interesting point. And what you're talking about is a financing model that is geared to look for the exit strategy, to look for that way to get out of actually getting your hands dirty and running a business. So over time, we've seen big shifts in our economy, the kinds that Robert Gordon has talked about. And there's a really interesting part of your book talking about the problems of GDP as a metric of measuring the economy. What is it really measuring? So if we're entering an age of stagnation, an age where there are fewer and fewer exit strategies for investors, why won't politicians just choose a new metric? Or do something like what happened in Italy, where suddenly cocaine sales or prostitution and smuggling were rolled into GDP. Because we see sites like Shadow Stats and so on that go back to older metrics of, say, inflation or unemployment and put out really high looking numbers of unemployment or high numbers of inflation. But then economists say, well, the structure of our economy's changed, so those numbers aren't valid. What do you think? Well, the first thing about measurement is why do we measure things? Because ultimately, if you actually look at ordinary day-to-day -day life, does the GDP number make a material difference to your well-being in terms of how much you earn, 
your lifestyle, what you can afford, all of those things. Those are driven, as you correctly point out, by entirely different factors. I'll give you a good example of that. If you actually look at the inflation numbers, theoretically, we are in a disinflationary or deflationary environment. Yet I can tell you, in terms of my living expenses, they've been going up steadily at between you know, 4 and 10% every year for the last 15 years. I always joke that the inflation numbers always show that the things I don't buy are going down in price and the things I do buy are going up in price. So they, to a large extent, are meaningless numbers, except for, I suppose, the best way to put it, is getting aggregate data which helps policy. That's basically all it is. And if you actually look at the GDP numbers, and Simon Kuznets, who actually invented it, was always very, very cautious about what those numbers meant. And he was trying to create a metric which allowed him nothing more than a heuristic to understand, essentially, what was going on at a, at a very, very high level in an economy. That's all he was interested in. But what we've now got is what I call the cult of measurement and the cult of growth. Because essentially, it's actually part of general managerialism. It's like a key performance indicator. I have very rarely seen key performance indicators which are meaningful. I used to work in a bank and I used to trade for a living. And the first thing I did when I got to a new place of employment is find out what their KPIs were and what would determine my bonus. And then I set out to game it. Because basically, any measurement technique can be gamed. And so essentially, we now have at a very, very important level, which is the economy, a measure which is gamed. And I'll give you an example of how it's gamed. You mentioned one, just by adding on new things into the economy that basically aren't measured normally, we can actually change the GDP. And you know why Italy and places like that wanted to do that. Their debt to GDP was too high, so they wanted to change the denominator, the GDP. So they found this mechanism for doing it. So essentially, they're manipulating this for whatever reason want to. And it's like a key performance indicator for politicians. I grew the economy by X. Nobody actually understands what it means. Nobody understands how it actually impacts them. But it's almost like, if I meet this target, you should re-elect me. These types of measures, I think, beyond a certain level, are not helpful. I'm not suggesting you don't measure things, but I'm suggesting you also understand the limitations. And by the way, there's a very funny story about the measurement of GDP. There are really two different stories. One is, as you know, France and certain other countries suddenly embraced Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Index. And in fact, Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was president of France, commissioned uh, Joseph Stiglitz and Amartya Sen, the Indian development economist, to develop a Gross National Happiness Index for France. And everybody sort of scratched their heads going, well, why the hell did they want to do this? And the answer is pretty simple. France's GDP growth is appalling. It's actually so low, and Nicolas Sarkozy was always sort of upset that France did not grow quicker than America, you know. It was a matter of national French Gaelic pride that they had to get better. So he just changed the index. Now, the other one, which is interesting, is you're talking about measuring things like prostitution, drugs, and so forth. The funniest one there is the Bureau of Stats equivalent in the United Kingdom. They published this paper when they were adding things like prostitution and drugs, which, by the way, according to them, is the same size as agriculture in the UK economy. But there's this very detailed description 
of exactly how they actually captured the contribution of prostitution, including you know how many persons a prostitute sees in a week and how much added gross value that actually adds and so forth. I just wanted to know what kind of field research that was based on and who actually did it. <laughs> well, I guess someone in the statistics office has to go out there and uh, you know do surveys or something. Well, they had to do something, but uh, it was an interesting thing. Uh, what kind of job description would you put for that? <laughs> you cited a Pew Research Center survey in your book that a considerable portion, about a third of Americans, a quarter of Germans, uh, just under a fifth of British people, think that their children will not be better off than future generations. And part of this post-war boom in economic growth in living standard improvements year over year has been that we've had a narrative that our children will live better than we did. But how are, say, older generations going to either admit or accept that their children aren't going to have the same opportunities or that same kind of upward trajectory of living standards? Well, the first thing I would say is human beings' capacity for cognitive dissonance is larger than the universe. So essentially, we're never going to admit it, firstly. We will pretend to the maximum of our ability until you know the events become so palpably contrary to that belief that we can't actually continue that. But that's, that's a long way down the track. But fundamentally, you have to go back and ask the question, why will future generations not be better off? And why won't we be able to generate these incremental changes in living standards to the positive? And the answer is, it goes back to where we started, which is if you look at all these problems, and particularly the way we deal with them, we just keep pushing the problems down into the future. And so by definition, somebody somewhere has to pay the bill. And if it's not going to be us, because fortunately we have finite lives, it'll be somebody who comes after it or somebody who comes after them. And there's a very easy way of actually measuring this. And there are several ways that you can approach the problem. And there are people who have actually done this, one of which is they looked at essentially taking the size of an economy and treating it like essentially a corporate balance sheet, which is putting all the liabilities in, like, you know, future unfunded this, debt, environmental damage, resource issues, and basically showing them as future liabilities. And it's Essentially, one way to think about it is the actual global economy is actually bankrupt. In other words, your liabilities are greater than your assets. And by definition, that means that the generations which come after us are going to have to basically pay for it. Another way of thinking about it is to look at what we call lifetime tax equations, which is how much did you pay in taxes and how much was the benefits that the state gave you? The interesting thing is every post-war generation on average, has been positive, which means they've paid less in taxes than they, the benefits that they've received on the other side. Now, when you actually project that forward, you see that reverse for future generations, because it has to. It's, it's an accounting equality, so at some point in time, it's got to reverse. And that shows what is actually happening, which is that effectively these problems are being deferred. And there's a very famous painting, which I've always loved, which is a Goya which is the painting of Saturn eating his children. And the mythology around that is Saturn was told in a prophecy that one of his children would kill him and replace him as ruler. So as a matter of course, he ate all his children when they were born. And to some extent, we are actually eating our children in this way. 
And the interesting thing is whether or not those generations to come actually rebel and start to rebel very soon, do almost like an Oedipal sort of event, which is they revolt against the generations which are still alive, but which have transferred these problems to them. But the real reason that's not happening is this is like boiling a frog. It's very slow. It is not palpably obvious. And we live in a society where there's a lot of propaganda, where we basically anesthetize people's ability to actually think through the issues. And so these people may not become aware of it. And to some extent, the fact that we are the wealthiest generation which has ever lived on the planet. And don't forget that our lifestyles would be envied by monarchs as recently as two, three hundred years ago. So what happens under those circumstances is pretty simple. We have enough wealth to keep transferring it for a little bit longer. And that sort of dulls this process. And by the time they realize the game's over, well, the people who are responsible for it are no longer here to be accountable. Well, you're talking about kind of the question of future generations and one key part of the post-war narrative has been pension funds and having accessibility to a pension fund when you retire. And so there are these funds like massive sovereign wealth funds, but also like CalPERS that has 300 billion and they need seven, eight percent per year in returns in California. Where are they going to get it in an age of stagnation? There's increasing life expectancy and in an age of stagnation, you would expect lower returns. So how do you see that playing out? Well, fundamentally, if you actually look at the pension systems, there's a dynamic there, which was always obviously, people think that retirement is a right. It's not. Retirement actually became a concept in probably the post-war era. And essentially, before that, people just worked till they couldn't or they died. And it was very simple. Now, we built all these infrastructures around a retirement industry, which actually assumed that they were going to be able to meet all these obligations. And as you know, there was a switch. The first one was the government basically guaranteed this, which is a pay-as-you-go model, which they expected to be able to tax future generations to pay for this. But essentially, then it was changed into defined contribution, which is you actually had to put in the money and whatever you save, plus the earnings on it, provided for your retirement. Now, I cannot see any way that this model was ever sustainable because for it to be sustainable, the PAYG, the pay-as-you-go model, relied on populations growing and the number of people in work always being substantially larger than the people in retirement, which hasn't obviously worked out as the demographics change. And the second one is a defined contribution model relies on abnormally high rates of return. And you're absolutely correct. There's no way many of these funds are going to make 7%. And I'm not the only one saying that. Jeremy Grantham, who's a very well-known investor who runs GMO, which is a Boston-based investment fund, he's been saying for the last three or four years that long-term returns are going to be more like 1%, 2%, which is well below the 7%. And the way this is going to be resolved is pretty straightforward. Where it's governments and so forth, The governments are just going to renege. And we're seeing that around the world. They're pushing up retirement ages. They're going to do it very subtly by taking off cost of living adjustments, all of these types of things where they're effectively going to lower their liabilities because they're going to have to. And in the States, what we've observed is many, many local municipalities and also the States themselves 
are basically going to have to file for bankruptcy, then use the bankruptcy court to basically change the pension rules because they have to. Because if the money's not there, it's not going to be paid. The second way that's going to occur is slightly different, which has already happened. If your retirement savings depend on your own savings plus the earnings on it, clearly you're never going to have enough money to retire. I live in Australia, and in Australia, if you do the numbers, and the numbers are not vastly different elsewhere, to retire you need, if you own your own home without any debt on it, you need right about in present value dollars, about three quarters of a million to a million dollars. If you're going to generate an income of roughly around $50,000, which is designed to accommodate you and your partner through to your debt, which is assuming a life expectancy in the 80s. Most people in Australia retire on about $100,000, which is palpably inadequate. So these people are not going to be able to retire, and they're basically going to have to work until they can't. And the state's safety net for all of this is going to get denuded, which is one of the ways living standards will fall. And people are in denial about this, but this is the reality of what is actually going to happen. And this is already, in part, showing up. So you're talking about how people will actually experience the age of stagnation. And as you mentioned, in many ways, we are the richest we've ever been as a species. Technically, our GDP is the largest ever. If you add it all up, you know, it's poorly distributed, but we do have some amazing technology. And Japan's economy has been in stagnation for decades. Yet it seems like the quality of life there is not so bad. Could the age of stagnation be a pleasant place to live? And how do you personally cope with that question and, and how you structure your life? I find it quite amusing, really. I occasionally get asked to speak to people about these issues, but generally I only get asked once. I never get asked back, which is <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon, which uh, I've come to accept as you know, it comes with the territory. But the interesting thing about how one copes, and John Stuart Mill, the Scottish philosopher, once said that it actually was a better way to think about the world as much more a steady state world. And he was kind of bewildered as to why people wanted this idea of improvement and so forth in the way that we now frame it, which is in terms of better living standards, more and more and more of material goods and so forth. There's nothing absolutely wrong about that. Now, the fundamental problems that we need to understand with that is that that would be fine except for one little problem, which is the debt we've run up and also the commitments we've made, which is the entitlement. Now, the only way we can actually get to that steady state is to reduce the debt and also to reduce those entitlements. Now, that becomes a political powder keg simply because you're going to have to write down the debt, which means the people who have saved, and I have some sympathy for that, because people who have saved are basically thrifty. They've actually not consumed. Now we're going to punish them. And things like negative interest rates are part of a confiscation of savings. And that is going to punish them. Now, the problem is, can a society actually cope with those types of stresses without the whole body politic splitting apart? And I don't know the answer to that. And you mentioned Japan. Japan's very interesting. And I think there is a desire on people. People like pattern recognition. They always look in history trying to find something which is equivalent. It gives them comfort. They want to see how things work out. And Japan, I think, is a very important example of what the world might look like. It mightn't be the only example, but it's a very good one. 
the thing about Japan, you've got to understand there are commonalities and there are differences. The commonalities are they had a debt fuel bubble, and when that collapsed, they weren't able to resuscitate their economy very easily. That's the first parallel. The second is the tools they've used are identical to the tools we're using, and they haven't worked, which is also a rather eerie parallel. But there are very important differences. The first is the demographics of Japan were actually very important. And people always say Japanese demographics are a problem, and they are. But in a crisis, they also have some positive attributes. And there's a couple of them. The first is, if you have an older population which is not growing, the first thing is, if it's older, it's richer. So you have this vast store of savings, which in Japan was also domestic, and it was mainly not in stocks, it was mainly in bank deposits, which can be used by the state to cushion the transition. And that's basically what Japan has done. But that's been at huge cost to the savers. The second element of the aging population which helped, there were not many people joining the workforce, which means that you don't have problems of massive unemployment and the social dysfunctionality that comes with it. And not every country in the world has the same demographics. So some countries, the United States is a good example of that, its demographics and growth are actually stronger than, say, Europe. So this problem of unemployment will have to be dealt with in some shape or form. Now, the other things which are very important to look at with Japan is during their period of transition from the bubble economy, they were able to rely on weakening their currency and exporting because the rest of the world was relatively healthy. Unfortunately, now the problem is much more global. And effectively, we do not have the ability to externalize our problems because even the emerging markets are actually now in the same position as some of the development economies. And some of them have the same demographic problems like China's one-child policy has made sure that their demographics are turning over. And in many ways, China looks like Japan, certainly in demographic terms. Now, the other reason that the Japanese example might not exactly be apposite is Japan is a highly homogenous society. And it's also very stoic because much of its consciousness was shaped by the disaster of the Second World War and the harsh realities and suffering of the post-war recovery. And they were able to accept the huge sacrifices needed in this period of stagnation that they've been experiencing. Now, I'm not sure that other societies, from a social and political point of view, will react in exactly the same way. I think one of the interesting things you're seeing for instance, in Europe, where the stagnation process is perhaps more advanced than in other places, is populist politics of both the right and left starting up. And this is in part nothing more or less than a reaction to what actually is happening in, in the sense of people's actual ability to meet their own expectations, which, by the way, being richer means our expectations are actually much higher. And one of the interesting things is I've been reading a lot of the history of the 1920s and 1930s, not because I don't know it, because I know it quite well, but I'm trying to work out how people reacted. And probably the great historian of that period, H.A.P. Taylor, the English historian, actually writes at one point, and I remember the quote very well, is he's talking about the destruction of the middle classes. He said, the savings investing middle class, everywhere the pillar of stability and respectability, 
was now utterly destroyed. They became resentful, violent, and irresponsible, ready to follow the first demagogic savior. And essentially what he's painting out is an eerie and very prescient view of what happened in the 20s and 30s, but what is now happening. And I don't think the analogy to Japan is entirely correct because I can't see Western democracy quite functioning in the same way. And you're seeing it now in the outcry over negative interest rates. There's an attendant to the negative interest rate debate, which is all this stuff about banning cash because terrorists use it is a load of BS. Because the real reason they want to ban cash has nothing to do with any of those things. And in fact, the reason was set out by Andrew Haldane, who's the chief economist of the Bank of England. He made it very clear that the next crisis is coming. When that crisis comes, they're going to have to cut interest rates into negative territory by substantial amounts, maybe as much as 5% negative. And if you do that, people will just take their money out of the bank and keep it in cash. By the way, in Japan in the 1990s, one of the few growth industries was home safes. And if that happens, the policy will not be able to be implemented. And Andrew Haldane said cash should be banned for that reason. But it's interesting the reaction to that for a whole bunch of reasons, including the libertarians with their own view, but other people who are concerned about their savings, is basically pointing to the fact that the social tensions that this period of dystopian economics and dystopian policies creating may actually lead to a fissure and fracture in society. And I don't think it's an economic problem anymore. I think it's a social and political problem. As a final question, in maybe 10 or so years, we could look back and see the 2008 global financial crisis and its aftermath over the previous years from 2016, when we're talking now, as the first phase in what you are describing as an age of stagnation. And so what's next as the next stage of this age of stagnation beyond the period post-2008 where politicians have been trying to figure out, well, are we reaching escape velocity now or is it coming in a year or we'll keep QE2, QE3 going. Now we're seeing negative interest rates. What's really the next big push? Well, I think firstly, to go back to where you started the question, is I think in historical terms, 2007 2008 will be seen quite differently in 10, 20 years to what it's now seen. At the moment, it's seen as a cyclical downturn. So basically, they're looking at it as a downturn and there was going to be a normal recovery. In 10, 20 years time, people will see this as a discontinuity, a massive shift. And essentially, it's like the first tremors in a major earthquake. That's the first thing. The second thing is what we're now in and you know, you can never, ever be sure how this thing will evolve. And I have three scenarios. The first scenario is what I call the Lazarus economy, which is basically I'm wrong. Everything sort of tomorrow we wake up and things go back to normal. And it turns out to be just a cyclical downturn. I give that about a half a percent chance. I don't think it's likely. The most major chance is what I call the stagnation, which is basically a managed depression, where we use monetary policy and all these tools to stretch out the problem, keep pushing it into the never-never, and we keep extending. And remember, politicians are really not into actually doing things nowadays. They're what I call nimtos, not in my term of office. 
So basically what they do is they avoid a disaster in their term of office and they won't invest in anything which doesn't give them benefits in their term of office. So they will keep rolling it forward, but it just gets harder and harder and harder. And the third scenario is basically what everybody fears, which is a complete breakdown, which is a financial market crash, a real economy crash, which would return us to the conditions were not dissimilar to the 20s and 30s. Now, I actually think how it'll evolve is that and I, I give the stagnation about 70% chance and the crash probably the, whatever the balance is, which is about 30%. But what I think will happen is we will continue to extend and pretend because human beings are not very, very good at facing up to problems. And so they're going to keep doing that. And Japan shows that you can string out these problems for a long period of time. And at some point in time, the room on the runway will run out. And when the room on the runway runs out, I think the crucial thing will be whether it's first just a purely a financial event and then massive reformation has to take place because people admit you can't go on like this. But I think there's a stage in between the crash and that reformation and that is a period of massive financial, social, political repression, which we're starting to see now anyway, where politicians and certain class of society basically try to essentially use a variety of mechanisms to actually suppress the dissent, suppress the problems. But as we know through history, that doesn't work forever. That only works for a period of time. So that is sort of how I see the thing evolving. The only thing I'm hoping for is all this happens after I'm dead, because I don't think it's going to be very pleasant, whichever way you actually look at it. But the funniest thing is that nobody that I've spoken to wants to admit this, but Galbraith once summed this up very neatly when he said, faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving there is no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy with the proof. Chill of Davos, Switzerland this year, World Economic Forum participants are concerned about innovating responsibly. Research related to mastering the fourth industrial revolution warns that increasingly high-tech changes threaten to eliminate millions of people's jobs. 19th century steam revolutionized first transportation, then factories, then last century digital technology overtook analog. The World Economic Forum has described the fourth industrial revolution as a tsunami of technological advances that will transform our economy. The future is already here. The future has begun. Why this fourth industrial revolution is so crucial? It's coming like a tsunami. When we look at all the breakthroughs and all the possibilities, 
opportunities which we have in the coming years, it will be overwhelming to see how fast the change will happen in an exponential speed. To have a vision, a long-term vision, we need people, leaders, who have a compass which shows them the way into the future. The United Nations comes out and predicts that by the year 2050, there will in fact be 9 billion people on the planet. The global economy is expected to grow by 3% annually over the next half century. But growth will be much stronger and much faster in emerging economies than in the developed countries of the OECD. Incomes and living standards in emerging economies will converge with those in the OECD. India will also benefit from population growth. It will jump from 7% of global GDP today to 11% in 2030 and 18% in 2060. After 50 years of rapid growth and shifting wealth, the emerging countries have drastically reduced the income gap with the United States. The history of growth. Economic growth for a lot of centuries, say starting when we can count in the year 1000, was mm -hmm. essentially negligible. Most countries were the same. Most countries had, were consisted of poor people with a few rich people who were powerful. Around 1750, we had the British Industrial Revolution, an inflection point in the kind of economic history of the world. The use of scientific knowledge and technology to create economic value. And the, and the interesting thing is that the Malthus effect, which is population will grow to eat up all of the incremental income, didn't actually happen either. And so per capita income started to rise. Mm -hmm. The snapshot picture of the world economy in 1950 was the result of this re that remarkable 200 years of economic history. It had been a long, long time since Americans had been free to buy anything they wanted, but now the war was over. Cars, radios, cordless electric irons, consumer goods of all kinds were coming off the assembly lines. The Great Depression was just a memory. Most Americans had prospered during the war. They had money now, and they were eager to spend it. Millions of returning veterans got married. That created a demand for new houses and new kitchen appliances. Rationing had ended, food was plentiful. Overnight, it seemed, traditionally frugal Americans became conspicuous consumers. Nylons filled the shop windows, and real rubber tires rolled out of the factories for the new cars coming off the reconverted assembly lines. Americans climbed back into their automobiles. With light hearts and no road maps, they headed off into a materialistic world of the future, never to return. Next up on the Extra Environmentalist, episode number 91, we speak with Michael Hudson about his new book, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy.
The financial sector today is decoupled from industrialization. Uh, its main interface with industry is simply to provide credit to corporate raiders, and their objective is asset stripping. They use the earnings to pay their financial backers, usually the junk bond holders, not to increase production. So the effect is to suck income out of the company and out of the economy to pay financial elites. Now, these elites play the role today that landlords did under feudalism. They levy interest and financial fees that are like a tax to support what the classical economists called unproductive activity. And that's what I mean by parasitic. If loans are not used to finance production or increase the economic surplus, then interest has to be paid out of other income. It's what economists call a zero-sum activity. So such interest is a transfer payment because it doesn't play a direct role in production. Credit may be a precondition for production to take place, but it's not a factor of production as such. So the situation is most notorious in the international sphere, especially as loans to governments that already are running trade and balance of payments deficits. Power tends to pass into the hands of lenders so they lose control and become less democratic. Now, to return to my use of the word parasite, any exploitation or free lunch implies a host. In this respect, finance is a form of war, and that's domestic as well as international. At least in nature, smart parasites may perform helpful functions. They can help their host find food, but as the host weakens, the parasite lays eggs, which hatch and devour the host, killing it. And that's what predatory finance is doing to today's economies. It's stripping assets, it's not permitting growth, or even letting the economy replenish itself. So the most important aspect of parasitism that I emphasize is the need of parasites to control the host's brain to enable this to take place. In nature, a parasite first dulls the host's awareness that it's being attacked. Then, as the free luncher produces enzymes that control the host's brain, they make it think that it somehow should protect the parasite and that the outsider is just part of its own body, even like a baby, to be protected. The financial sector does something similar today by pretending to be part of the industrial production and consumption economy. The national income and product accounts treat the interest, profits, and other revenue that Wall Street extracts along with what the rentier sectors at backs take, as if these activities add to gross national product. The reality is that they're a subtrahend. They're a subtrahend from the real economy to the finance, insurance, and real estate sector, the fire sector. So it's really interesting to think about these eggs being kind of laid in our brains, you know, and I can see that every time I turn on the media, I can see those eggs being laid in our brains. Well, that's and, what uh, the academic economics is for. They yeah. sort of teach students and teach the mainstream journalists to say, well, Wall Street's profits help the economy grow. And if you look at national income and product accounts, all the growth in the last few years has been to the 1%, mainly in the fire sector. It hasn't been for the economy as a whole. That's not growing. What's growing are the 1%, and they call this growth, even though the growth of the 1% is mainly what it takes from the 99%. Now, you were talking about the national income product accounts and the fire sector. Our listeners may not be immediately familiar with what you're meaning by that. So if you could just quickly explain what you mean by the national income product accounts and fire. 
Governments provide statistics, and these statistics are supposed to tell how the economy is working. They're supposed to be a picture. But there is an ideological argument over just what is economic growth and how does the economy work. For instance, in the 1930s, one Department of Commerce economist, Roy Ovid Hall, wanted to include crime. And the government said, we can't include crime, you know, because that's not very nice. Well, the classical economists all had a basic focus about economic rent and landlords, and they wanted to depict landlords and bankers as not being part of the economy, but overlayering it being external to it, somehow taking income from it. And around 1900, there was a reaction against this, and the rentiers fought back. Wall Street said, wait a minute, we're productive. Landlord said, we're productive, and we take rent from tenants. We're supervising the economy's property. And Wall Street said, when we create credit on our computer keyboards, we're playing a role as if interest and credit were somehow a factor of production instead of a charge on production. So to look at the national income and product accounts, it's as if everybody who makes money in any way, even crooked bankers, it's as if they're contributing to gross national product or gross domestic product, not as if they're taking something away from other people. In the national income and product accounts, there's no such thing as exploitation. And in fact, if you go to graduate school and you are indoctrinated in the textbooks, exploitation doesn't appear. I'm wondering where the departation happens between the stuff we learn in school, the economy that really happens, and the economy that's in the world. You know, where, where does that big disconnect happen, and what's the biggest disconnect there? Well, there's simply no connect. It's like advertising. Madison Avenue is supposed to come up with slogans to serve the backers and the advertisers. And that's basically what the economics profession is doing today. Students who don't want to do this, who want to go into economics to reform the topic, basically drop out and go into another field. And so when I went to work on Wall Street, for instance, banks had a research department, and uh, I loved it. That's where I learned how the world works, working for savings banks and working as Chase Manhattan's balance of payments economist. But now, after I left, they changed the name of economic research to research and publications, and it all became sort of part of their marketing department and public relations department, no longer doing research. And basically, the results of economic research today would not be the picture that Rosie Wall Street wants to paint the economy in. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit in just a minute about how this departure in economic thought occurred and why today's economics is so pro-creditor. But you were just talking about your background. And let's talk a little bit about your history and how you became a historian of economic thought and studied economics. How did you get into it originally? Well, I started out wanting to be a musician, a composer and a conductor. I wasn't uh, very good at either. But I'd studied the musical theories of Heinrich Schenker, and so I got my sense of aesthetics from music theory and the idea of modulation from one key to another, that it's dissonance that drives music forward, always to resolve in a higher key or overtone. So when I was introduced to economics by the father of a schoolmate, I found it as aesthetic just like music. In a sense, it's a self-transforming dynamic through history by challenge and response resolution. So I went to work for banks on Wall Street and was fortunate enough to learn how central mortgage lending and real estate were for the economy. 
And then I became Chase Manhattan's balance of payments economist in 1964. And I got entranced with tracing how the surplus was buried in the, in the statistics. Who got it? And what was it used for? Mainly the banks got it, and they used the surplus to make new loans. So I viewed the economy as modulating from one phase to the next. A good interpretation would explain history. But the way the economy actually works was nothing like what I was taught in school, getting my PhD in economics at New York University. And a PhD was like a union card. You needed to get it in order to be taken seriously because as one corporation explained to me, they know that it's silly. They know that it's not how the world works. They know that it doesn't have anything to do with how the economy works, but it shows that somebody's willing enough to go through a lot of effort doing something they don't believe in to suitably prepare them to go to work on Wall Street or for the corporate economy. I think that happens in a lot of industries. There's a huge disconnect from what you learn in school and what actually happens. I think now it would be really interesting to hear an example maybe about how we see this kind of predatory financial markets happening in the world. The oil industry, I think, would be a fantastic example of that. Well, for starter, it chased one of my jobs from 1965 and six was to make the balance of payments of the oil industry. And the first thing I learned was how the industry became tax exempt, not only because of the notorious depletion allowance, but by offshoring profits in flag of convenience countries like Liberia and Panama. These are not real countries. They don't have their own currency, but they use U.S. dollars, and they don't have an income tax. So I found out that the international oil companies sold crude oil at low prices from the Near East or Venezuela to their Panamanian or Liberian uh, shipping companies, telling the producing countries that oil was not all that profitable. These shipping affiliates then owned tankers and charged very high prices to the refineries and the distributors in Europe and the Americas. So the prices were so high that these refineries and other downstream operations marketing gas to consumers didn't show a profit either. So they didn't have to pay a European or U.S. tax. Panama and Liberia have no income tax, so the global revenue of the oil companies was tax-free. These were the first offshore banking centers. And that's why it's very hard to close them down today because the main users are oil, gas, and uh, mining. So I learned the difference between a branch and an affiliate, all the technicalities, and my statistics showed how quickly the dollars invested abroad were returned to the United States in only 18 months. The balance of payments accounting format that I designed to find out how the, the oil industry worked led me to go to work for an accounting firm and use the same approach to the overall balance of payments. And I found that the entire deficit was military spending abroad, not foreign aid or trade. So oil industry became my key to looking how the U.S. balance of payments worked. So the oil industry was basically paying no tax on their revenue. And we all know the oil companies make a lot of money. How is the, the government letting them get away with this? It, well, the oil like, industry had a very strong affluence over the government because uh, the oil industry, like most rent extracting industries, merge with Wall Street banks and investment banks. The banks went to bat for the government for the oil industry, just like they go to bat for the real estate industry and make their customers tax exempt to leave more revenue available to pay the banks' interest to expand. And you can look at the oil industry and real estate is part of the finance, insurance, and real estate fire sector. 
Now, what you're talking about is a really different picture from the way these kinds of international trade dynamics and the oil industry is modeled and taught in academic economic theory. And in your experience as a professor of international trade and finance, could you talk a little bit more about this disconnect between academic economic theory and, and international trade and finance, how it really works? Well, the reason I finally stopped teaching in 1971-72 was because I couldn't fit reality into the curriculum. The aim of academic trade theory is to tell students, look at the model, not at how nations actually develop. So of all the branches of economic theory, trade theory was the most wrongheaded. I, I never had a course in it at New York University, so I taught it at the new school because I thought that's the only way to learn about it. And I found it was absolute nonsense, which I love because here is something ripe for a revolution. For the lead nations, the objective of free trade theory is to persuade other countries not to protect their own markets. And that means not developing in the way that Britain did under its mercantilist policies that made it the home of the Industrial Revolution. And it means not protecting domestic industries like the U.S. and Germany did in order to catch up with British industry and overtake it in the 19th and early 20th century. So I saw the trade theorists always start with the conclusion this is not a scientific investigation. The conclusion is either free trade or protectionism. And free trade theory, as expounded by Paul Samuelson and others, starts by telling students to assume a parallel universe, one that doesn't really exist. The conclusion they start with is that free trade makes everyone's income distribution between capital and labor similar. And because the world has a common price for raw materials and dollar credit and machinery, these similar proportions mean equality. So you start with the conclusion, everybody's getting more equal if you don't protect yourself, if you let free trade and free markets exist. That's what Samuelson was given the Nobel Prize for, for proving that. Of course, if you start with the real world, instead of academic assumptions, you see that the real world is polarizing. Academic trade theory can't explain this, and in fact, it denies that reality can exist at all. So a major reason why the world is polarizing is because of financial dynamics between creditors and debtor economies. Trade theory starts by assuming the world is barter, so this doesn't appear. Finally, when the transition is made from trade theory to international finance, the assumption is that all countries running trade deficits can stabilize simply by imposing austerity, by lowering wages, by wiping out pension funds, and joining the class war against labor, which is just what the IMF and the European Central Bank are telling Greece. Now, all these assumptions I found were repudiated already in the 18th century when Britain sought to build its empire by pursuing mercantilist policies. The protectionist American school of economics in the 19th century put forth the economy of high wages doctrine to counter free trade theory. None of this historical background appears in today's mainstream textbooks. That's why I provided a historical theory in my own trade development and foreign debt, which summarizes the lectures that I gave at the New School from 1969 to 72. Well, in the 1920s, free trade theory was used to insist that Germany could pay reparations far beyond its ability to earn foreign exchange. 
Keynes, Harold Moulton, and other economists controverted that theory. And in fact, already in 1844, John Stuart Mill had described how paying foreign debts depreciates the currency. And when a currency falls, what really is lowered is wages. So what passes for today's mainstream trade theory that's given all the prizes is an argument for reducing wages and fighting a class war against labor. You can see this very clearly in the Eurozone against Greece where the austerity programs that the IMF imposed on third world debtors from the 1960s onward was basically an anti-labor theory to impoverish these countries. Obviously, it was self-destructive, but the critics said, well, even though the IMF drives countries into depression, they weren't hard enough. They didn't lower wages enough. They were not anti-labor enough. That's academic free trade theory. So you were talking about how when you looked at the initial assumptions for the economic theory that the models are built on, they're often disproved if you look back in the history of economic thought. And it's really interesting because in my own PhD work and PhD research, I see time and time again where a model is created in academic economics to prove a particular point. But the basic assumptions that are laid down create the conclusion more than the actual model structure ever contributes towards. So basically, the initial assumption is creating the world, and the model is just decorating it so it looks rigorous and consistent and so on. So today's mainstream economic theory and academic study, you argue, is really pro-creditor. But you're looking back in the history of economic thought. And what was it from classical economics in the 1700s, 1800s, that really can contribute to thinking about the economy today? What lessons from back then are still useful to learn about? The focus of classical economics was to try to cure Europe of the legacy of feudalism. And the legacy of feudalism was a landlord class. The heirs of the armies that had conquered the land in the Norman conquest of England and similar Viking conquests of Europe, and also banking. The whole objective of Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and the others was to try to prepare for the Industrial Revolution by freeing economies from this overhead of economic rent, land rent, monopoly rent, and interest that didn't play a role in production, but simply was paid because of the privileges that were inherited from feudalism. And so classical economics had an idea of free market as a market free from rent and free from interest. And today's economics reverses all that. A free market today is a market free for the rentiers, free for the landlords, free for the banks to get whatever they want, for the monopolists to charge whatever they want without government regulation. So today's economics is diametrically opposed to Adam Smith and the classical economists. And that's why the history of economic thought has been dropped from the curriculum. At least when I went to school in the 1960s, there were still courses in economic thought and even courses in economic history. All this is dropped today in order to teach mathematics. And the mathematics are taught as Paul Samuelson and also another Nobel Prize winner, Bill Vickery, wrote in their textbooks, we're not talking about the real world. The criterion of good economics is whether its assumptions are uniform. Think of economics like a novel. In novel, you're supposed to have a suspension of disbelief. You're supposed to accept what the novelist writes. The characters are the way they are. The world is the way it is. And so in a way, it's like science fiction. So the bizarre thing is that economics is not taught in the humanities as a sub-branch of science fiction. It's actually taught as a if it were a social science. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. It's really interesting because you, you mentioned how the people who descended from the military leaders kind of still are in control almost of the economic system in so many ways. Do we see the financial system as kind of just a, a cheap explanation to justify force, to, to justify empire? No. Uh, empires are to justify the financial system. Uh, the whole purpose of empire is financial, not vice versa. It's not the military that supports finance. It's finance that's always supported the military as a collection agent. That's what the new Cold War is about today, trying to oppose any country that doesn't want to accept U.S. and European banking in control of its economy. So talking about the history of economic thought and debt, one of the things that I see when I read Paul Krugman's work or that of many other modern economists is they don't see debt as an issue because essentially everyone's debt is another person's credit. And so it all balances out in a closed system in equilibrium. And so uh, kind of aggregate debt over time as it adds up isn't really a problem. Why is debt treated this way in thinking about the economy? Krugman doesn't really understand how the economy works. That's why he's celebrated so much. He says it doesn't matter because we owe it to ourselves. But the we who owe it are the 99%. And the people who are ourselves are the 1%. So the 99% owe to the 1%. And they owe more and more thanks to the magic of compound interest. So what doesn't matter to Krugman is the distribution of income. What doesn't matter to him is who owes debt to whom and what the 1% do with the money, the interest and the fees they get, which is to make even more loans and polarize the economy more and more. Piketty doesn't talk about this in his book on capital, which gives wonderful statistics on the polarization of income and the concentration of all the income and wealth gains to the 1%. He doesn't talk about why this is occurring, and he doesn't talk about finance. Again, both of them make the anti-classical air imagining that finance is part of the economy rather than sort of a parasitic wrapping around it, sucking all of the surplus up to the top. Now, there's this idea of debt that we have in our daily lives of, you know, the amount we have on our credit cards or the amount on a mortgage. And then there's this broader idea of international debt, the debt that countries have, that the U.S. has. Now, could the U.S. or could other countries really pay down their debt permanently? Just talking specifically about the case of the U.S., could it pay down its debts entirely, the national debt, right now by the Federal Reserve is something like 18 or $19 trillion. Does that really matter? Should you know a presidential candidate or someone advocate for paying down the national debt? Well, that would be a disaster. It's mainly the anti-labor austerity advocates who urge balancing the budget and even to run surpluses to pay down the debt. The effect has to be austerity. If you paid off the national debt, you would have no money because the folding money in your pocket is government debt. Money has always been government debt ever since Babylonian, ancient Mesopotamia. So there's a false parallel that's drawn here with private saving. Of course, individuals should get out of debt by saving what they can. But governments are different. Governments create money and spend it into the economy by running budget deficits. And the paper currency in your pocket is the result of these deficits. Governments create money that way. When President Clinton ran a budget surplus in the late 1990s, that sucked revenue out of the economy. 
When governments don't run deficits, the economy has to rely on banks, and they charge interest for providing this credit. But governments can create money on their own computers just as easily as banks can do, and they can do it without having to pay bondholders and banks. That's the essence of modern monetary theory, MMT, and it's elaborated mainly at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, where I'm on the faculty, especially by Randy Ray, who's published a number of books on money, and Stephanie Kelton, who Bernie Sanders appointed as head of the Senate Democratic Budget Committee. So if the government were to pay off debts permanently, there'd be no money except for what the banks create. And that's why the banks want to prevent government from creating money. They want to monopolize the money creation power. And the effect would be austerity. So we see around the world right now, something like 25% of all national debt has a yield price and negative interest rates. Can you tell us a little bit what that means? And do you see this trend continuing? It's going to continue. The reason there are negative interest rates is because investors worry that the debts can't be paid. They look around them and they see that the stock market is going to go down. They worry that there are going to be a lot of defaults. And so there's a rush to put the money into public debt, into government bonds, because, again, the government can always print the money and other people can't. So the effect is to lower the interest rates. And that also, quantitative easing, is intended to bid up markets, to create a new bubble. That basically is what the Obama administration told the Federal Reserve to do, or what the Federal Reserve told the Obama administration to do after the 2008 crisis. If you lower the interest rates, then somehow you can make new mortgages and you can make speculation in the stock market high enough that you can somehow restore the prosperity of the 1%. Something had to give in 2008. Either you had to save the banks or the economy. And the Obama administration chose to save the banks. And the way they saved them was to give them so much money and to lower interest rates so much that the bank's balance sheet had the illusion of being solvent. And banks could borrow from the Federal Reserve at 0.1% and lend to corporate raiders or speculators or mergers and acquisitions or lend for foreign currency speculation and rebuild their balance sheet to earn back all the money they'd lost in making their junk loans and engaging in the enormous fraudulent lending that they'd engaged in. That was really nice of Obama to do that for the financial system. Well, um, that, his job was to represent his campaign contributors, not uh, yeah, it, voted for him. That's politics. And, and, and right now we're in the midst of political campaigning season in the United States. And yeah, I couldn't help but you know want to throw in there that we're actually seeing a person who is representing the financial system pretty much fully running for president now. That is probably an illustration of seeing this financial system coming all the way into the politic political sector, finally actually seeing a candidate rise from that financial place and, and get himself into the White House. My question is, do you think that it's possible for uh, any sort of political leader to have a kind of transformative effect to make these types of transactions illegal, to make these kind of changes that you talk about in your book a reality? Well, the president or a political leader alone can't do it. One of the things that the financial sector has insisted upon is that central banks and treasuries be independent of politics. 
for 100 years in Britain and Europe, you had a fight to make economies more democratic because Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and Ricardo, the Ricardian socialists, said, how are we ever going to be able to stop the landlords from taking all the money, keeping the economy in poverty? And the way to do it, they decided, was we need political reform. We need to extend the vote and to strengthen the House of Commons in England so that it can override the House of Lords that's controlled by the landed interest. And it took uh, about 100 years until finally there was a constitutional crisis in 1910 and Britain passed a law when the House of Commons tried to pass a land tax. That was overruled by the House of Lords in 1909. There was a constitutional crisis and it was resolved by saying that the House of Lords could never again overrule the House of Commons. So you'd extended democracy as a means of enabling governments to pass laws against the landlords, against the banks, against the monopolists, and move away from a rentier economy to an economy where people actually earned in proportion to what they produced in an economy that tried to raise labor up, not raise the 1%. Well, the 1% fought back, and they fought back by trying to regain control of the political process. And that happened in the United States by the Citizens United ruling that said, yes, political campaigns can be backed by whoever has the most money. There are no financial limits on who can contribute. And so now you have political campaigns dependent on the campaign contributors and the main contributors are Wall Street and real estate and monopolists such as the pharmaceutical industry. So you have a whole fight against democracy. And you could see this in Europe, in Greece, when after the Syriza party was elected, they tried to write down the loans last year and said, wait a minute, even the IMF economists have said the loans shouldn't have been made, the loans can't be paid, and Varoufakis, the Greek finance minister, was told, so he said, we don't care about democracy. Elections don't change anything. We're in control. Either you pay us or we'll smash you. And Varoufakis realized that if Europe really proceeded to smash them, the result would be a, a nationalist, probably an, a neo-Nazi type of reaction, and that Greece was told, knuckle under, we'll smash you, we're in control, it doesn't matter what voters vote for. Now, you mentioned earlier this idea of a free market that Adam Smith and Ricardo were talking about, and it's so different from how their ideas are represented today in mainstream economic thinking regarding a free market, which now when people hear that term free market, they're really thinking, oh, free from government intervention. But what you're talking about is the way that they were meaning it was freeing the market economy from the impacts of rent and interest which is not just government, but also the rentier class. You mentioned in your book that in the same way that the oil industries funded junk science on global warming denial, Wall Street has been funding and endowing junk economics and a lot of modeling based on this kind of equilibrium thinking and neglecting the role of debt. Could you talk a little bit about how Wall Street has done that and how that's influenced thinking about the economy? Adam Smith and the subsequent classical economists tried to distinguish between productive and unproductive economic activity. Activity. That's what all the arguments between Ricardo and Malthus, all throughout the 19th century you have that. And they wanted to isolate unproductive rentier income and unproductive spending so that the economy would spend on productive uses and be more competitive. And they defined the labor theory of value designed to isolate 
uh, price that didn't have any actual necessary cost of production. Economic rent was defined as the excess of price over what was necessary to bring a factor into production. And the idea was to free industrial capitalism from the legacy of feudalism. And that was the intention at the time. And obviously, the rentiers didn't want anything like that. Well, for the oil industry, for instance, their idea of stability and equilibrium isn't freeing the economy from unnecessary charges. An oil industry would say, how can our profits grow at the current rate? They project them into the future and they say, in order for our profits to grow at a continued rate of making oil, water levels are going to have to raise by 50 feet. Continents will have to be submerged. That's the price that we're willing to pay in order to maintain our profit stream because that's equilibrium. Equilibrium is when we continue to grow at 5% per year, year after year, regardless of global warming, because after all, we're going to be dead by then. We're going to be taking our bonuses and our salaries and all of our capital gains are going to buy our houses. We'll be okay. And for the oil industry and for business, the economy is an externality. In other words, that's economic talk for something that doesn't matter. External to the equation that we're drawing, external to the economic trends that we're forecasting. And poverty, it's like the military use of collateral damage. Global warming is collateral damage for the oil industry and the coal industry to continue to do what it's doing and making profits without end. I think your analysis of the past is is very spot on and it, it really sums it up very well. I, I'd be interested to hear about your vision for an economic future, what the economic future of the world could look like if we if we thought about it and took steps to, or you know maybe business decided that we didn't we don't want to be exploitative anymore i would wonder what it could look like if business decided it didn't want to be exploitative, it wouldn't be business. What I see is a slow crash. There's not going to be an alternative economic policy until what Bernie Sanders said is going to be a revolution. There has to be a different way of thinking. And I don't see a different way of thinking right now. That's the problem that the social democratic parties and the labor parties that used to be the left 100 years ago somehow now focus on cultural issues or ethnic or sexual identity. But the one thing they don't talk about is economics. They don't talk about finance. They don't talk about economic rent. They don't talk about all of the focus of whether it's necessary for the economy to be structured in a way that siphons all the income up to the top 1%. And that's why mainstream economics has become so irrelevant. And there almost has to be a new discipline created to talk about how we want to bring a different future about with uh, different models. Well, actually, they tried to do this a little over 100 years ago. Some economists said, we can't continue this British free market theory and free trade theory, so we're going to create a new field, and we're going to call it sociology, because that's going to be political economy, putting the political and the social back into asocial economics. But then sociology was turned into sort of cross-section analysis also by the University of Chicago, where I happened to go to school, but not in economics. And so the social sciences have all been turned into static disciplines. They're not telling you how to get there from here. They're not telling you to have any economic future except austerity, which is the bottom line of almost any economic model that is considered respectable today.
Now, as we talk about how the financial system and the financialized economy is destroying the industrial economy and reducing the abilities for economies to function and meet basic needs of people, could there be a more symbiotic relationship, using that parasite metaphor, with modern societies and global financial institutions? Because at the end of the day, for money, for the rent extracted by the financial class from people to have value, doesn't it need to have a functioning economy underneath it rather than just one that's entirely of financial value? Well, if the problem is financial parasitism, then the solution is to get rid of the financial parasite. And in this case, the parasitic dynamic is debt. So what you'd need to do would be to do what was recommended in 2008, to write down the debts to the ability to be paid. And that was exactly what the creditors are not willing to do. They say, wait a minute, that's going to crash the banks and then you won't be able to withdraw your money from ATMs. So you need a debt write-down, and this was done in Germany by the Allied Monetary Reform in 1948. It was called the German Economic Miracle. All internal debts were canceled except for the wages that employers owed their workers, you know, for the previous month, and minimum working balances. And then in 1952, the remaining international debts of Germany were written down. So a write-down can create an economic miracle. It's exactly what happened to Germany, but now Germany is using the same arguments against Southern Europe that the allies and the creditors used against it in the 1920s that brought about its collapse and its turn to fascism. So it's really that simple. You cannot have recovery unless you write down the debts. And right now the IMF says, okay, you can write down the debts, but we're going to bring in the World Bank. And if you can't pay the debts, we know you don't have the money. Sell off your land, sell off your ports, sell off your electrical system, sell off whatever is in the public domain, the, the phone systems, the power utilities, privatize them all. And of course, once they're privatized, then you're going to have investors, usually foreign investors, adding interest charges and monopoly rents and just predatory pricing and taking even more money out of the country and the countries are going to be even poorer than privatized. So finance is today's mode of war. You don't need to go to war to conquer a country like you did a thousand years ago with the Norman Conquest. All you need is finance as a means of war as long as countries believe that there's no alternative. And that, of course, with Margaret Thatcher's phrase, there is no alternative. But of course there is an alternative. And that's what economics is designed to prevent people realizing. It's almost like you can do hostile takeovers of countries without any military. That That's very fascinating. Well, that's have what we the World Bank is for, and that's why have the heads of the World Bank are almost all former heads of the Defense Department. McNamara, if you look at the heads of the World Bank, they're all Defense Department people. Finance is war. Have we ever seen such enormous financial might in history before, or has it mostly been military might? If you read Matthew Paris in the 13th century, uh, it's all about how the bankers close to the papacy were stripping England of its money. So yes, you've had it again and again in history. You had it in Rome when creditors, essentially you had a century of social war between 133 BC and 29 BC when Augustus was crowned. You had a war between debtors and creditors marked by political assassination. The Gracchi brothers were killed. Tiberius Gracchi was murdered 
murdered in 133, and you had a century of murder, including the murder of Julius Caesar, and that's how the creditors retained power. They reduced one quarter of the Roman population to debt bondage, and the result was the Dark Age. That's the trajectory we're in now. Talking about modern-day dynamics of this financialized economy again, one of the major trends that we're seeing and that we've been seeing over the last few years is that of stock buybacks, where instead of companies investing in productive capacity, in research and development, they're using their profits to buy their own stock and boosting their share price. And while today's economy has some amazing technology like Skype that we're talking on today, like the computers we're using to record this stuff and the communication technology that exists, there are companies like Apple that produce this technology, but Apple is also a prime example of financial engineering. Could you talk a little bit about this because you go into this in your book? Well, when a company uses revenue simply to buy its own shares to support their price, this is only temporary because last year in America, you had the highest proportion of share back buybacks in history. And since January 1st, the market plunged by 20%. So companies actually went into debt to buy shares, buy the share buybacks to support the price or to pay dividends. And now the price is down and they still owe the debts. They remain in place. The shares are ephemeral, but the CEOs have taken their profits and that's what they were at. Now, the main financial innovation by Apple was to set up a branch office in Ireland and pretend that the money that Apple makes in the United States and elsewhere in the world is made in Ireland that has only a 15% income tax rate. Now, the problem is that if Apple were to remit this income back to the United States to pay dividends, it would have to pay U.S. income tax, and it wants to avoid this. And so what it does is say, okay, we can borrow from U.S. banks at very low interest rates, we can pay dividends in our stock, and we can pursue our stock buyback program instead of bringing these dividends back. So it seems to be an anomaly. Why should the richest company in the world have to borrow from banks when it has so many billions of dollars all abroad? And the reason is it's, it's all engineered, not to pay taxes. Well, what you have right now is the Republican candidate for president are saying, we can have all these companies bring their money back to the United States by declaring a tax holiday. We'll let all these tax avoiders get away with their tax avoidance. We'll let them bring all their money back and we'll say there's an amnesty tax-free. You won't be charged if you bring them back once. And there'll be a huge flow of money back to the United States. The dollar will soar against foreign currencies. By the way, pricing American industry out of world markets by making the dollar so expensive. So that's the fight that's going on today. Should we let companies get away with all their tax avoidance, bring their money back, then Apple can repay its debt to the bank. It will have squandered all the money it borrowed by the stock buybacks and the dividends when its shares are going down anyway. That's the story of the whole stock market today. I see the way you describe these the businesses is almost kind of like soldiers going off to war, fighting these battles to take over other nations and the same kind of little battles we've had throughout human history. I wonder what you think the people 100, 200 years from now are going to think about our time in U.S. history, about our time as the empire of the world. 
Well, we don't know whether they're going to be living in a dark age or not. We don't know what's going to be happening. We don't know whether they're all going to be underwater. We have no idea what's going to happen in 200 years. We can say what Adam Smith and the classical economists warned about, and they warned about exactly what's happening now, but they were all optimists. Anyone, including Marx, who tries to have a materialist approach to history, you think that history is going to get the most modern technology and the technology is universal, so everybody's going to adopt modern technology and it's going to bring about a leisure economy. And if you read the sociology and the economics of 100 years ago, everyone thought we'd be living in a leisure economy by now. And instead, people are working harder and harder just to stay afloat and they're not making it. They're falling further and further into debt. Nobody before imagined that any kind of society could end up the way that we've ended up today. So in talking about what's been happening the last few years and looking toward the near-term future as we close out our interview and our time with you today, in 2007-2008, we had a subprime crash that was seen as the trigger of this ongoing global financial crisis. And since 2014, we've been having a big commodities crash where oil prices, copper prices, commodity prices are low. And a lot of this is paralleling what's going on in emerging market economies. So are emerging market economies in China the next subprime? Are they going to be the trigger for the next financial crash? There's an attempt to blame China. But the reason that the U.S. and the Eurozone economies are going into a depression isn't because of China. It's because of debt deflation. And that really is what my book, Killing the Host, is about, debt deflation. Commodity prices and consumer spending are falling, mainly because consumers have to pay most of their wages to the fire sector for rent or mortgage payments, student loans, bank and credit card debt. They have to pay over 15% of the wage withholding here for Social Security and Medicare, which is really to enable the government to cut taxes on the higher income brackets. And they also have to pay income and sales taxes. And after all this is paid, consumers have only about one third of their income, maybe less to spend on commodities. So of course, commodity prices are crashing. It's not China's fault. Oil is a special case because Saudi Arabia is trying to drive U.S. fracking rivals out of the business and also to hurt Russia. But the problem is debt deflation that we have here. And it's always easy to blame foreigners because then people are not going to look at the actual causes of what's impoverishing the economy here. So basically, I, I'm thinking about your book as a whole, and it feels a lot like a war, a, a cold war. And I think you've written that we're entering into a financial cold war. The IMF and the U.S. have been very strict on the debt repayment loans for debtor nations. But in Ukraine, they made an exception regarding Russia. Maybe you could go into a little bit more detail and discuss your recent writing on that. Well, the Obama administration's reset for Russia was based just as much against China. And he's given in to the neocons who actually think that if we're going to go to war with Russia and China, we'd better do it now because we can blow them up more today than we can in a few years. So the U.S. diplomats radically changed the IMF lending rules last year as part of their economic sanctions that were imposed on Russia after the U.S. backed coup d'etat by the right sector, Svoboda, and their neo-Nazi 
Nazi allies in Kiev. The ease with which the United States changed the IMF's rules to support the military coup shows how the IMF is simply a tool of President Obama's new Cold War policy. The aim was to enable the IMF to keep lending to the military junta, even though Ukraine is in default of its $3 billion official debt to Russia. And even though Ukraine refuses even to negotiate payment, and even though the IMF money has been used to fund kleptocrats like Kolomoisky to field his own army, a terrorist army, against Russian speakers in the Donbass. So Ukraine has no foreseeable means of repaying the IMF loan or other creditors, given its destruction of its export industry in the eastern sector, which is the Russian-speaking sector, and which is exporting to Russia. My articles on this are all on my website, michael-hudson.com, and the U.S. has made it very clear that international finance is an arm of the State Department, and the IMF is really just an office inside the Pentagon with a side office in Wall Street, uh, acts as a collection agent for countries, and will try to smash countries that try to withdraw from the U.S. financial orbit, like the U.S. isolated Cuba, Iran, North Korea. The idea is open your economies to U.S. banks, let us privatize your industry, let Americans buy out your industry and triple your oil prices, let us essentially take over your government and concentrate financial planning on Wall Street, or else we'll smash you. It's really where the rules are very strict as long as the U.S. is in control, and then as soon as it can harm U.S. enemies, the rules can change, is what you're talking about. Well, the irony, of course, is that the U.S. is the world's largest debtor and has no intention at all of repaying its debt, which is foreign central banks' holdings of treasury securities. So the whole international financial system is based on foreign central banks holding treasury bonds to finance the U.S. balance of payments deficit that's mainly military in nature. So other countries are asked to finance their own military encirclement is the basis of their financial system. That's why China... Russia and the BRICS are trying to create their own non-dollar system. They want to decouple from this parasitic system. So not only is finance parasitic domestically, but the international finance system is part of a parasitic military encirclement of these countries. Now, this parasitic system that you're talking about, does the body of the traditional left have the ability, have the ideas to solve some of these challenges on financial warfare? Because the story of Greece is really relevant because Syriza was embodying a lot of these traditional left ideas, took over, and then ended up giving in to the demands of the creditors. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, the Syriza group realized that the European Central Bank was going to smash it and bring the Golden Dawn, a neo-Nazi party, to power if, if they didn't go along. And if you look at how the CIA has operated for the last 50 years in every country, they've pushed left-wing social democratic parties or labor parties to promote a leader like Tony Blair or other leaders like that. They've pushed the left-wing parties not to be left-wing anymore, but somehow to change their whole identity into talking about social, non-economic functions. And 
you're going to have to have a whole new alternative set of parties. That's why Syriza was created originally to replace the old socialist party that had been in the forefront of imposing austerity. Not only that, but the leader of the socialist party, Papandreou, was appointed and then re-elected head of the Socialist International, the socialist party, so-called socialist party of Spain, pushing austerity. The socialist parties in every country are now to the right wing of the right-wing parties. The socialist parties are pushing austerity. And obviously, the word socialism has just become an advertising label having nothing to do with the content and nothing to do with what used to be considered socialism. So you've mentioned revolution a couple times, and I wanted to talk to you about how do you think people react when they're confronted with the fact that they are part of a system that cares little about them or their families and is really only concerned with wealth aggregation for a select few. Do you see that people are waking up from this? Maybe you don't see that. Maybe you see the eggs are just being laid in their heads and they're just going along with it just hunky-dory until their houses are undervalued and they can't make any payments on their mortgage. Where do you see the future of this kind of stuff going for the normal person? How do they react to it? Well, the normal person reacts with cognitive dissonance. They don't understand it, and they blame the victim. You have Ayn Rand-type individualism saying the victims are responsible for their debts. And so the people who are poor and in debt think, well, gee, we owe the money and we can't pay. We've somehow failed. They blame themselves. They don't blame the system. And that's what has to change in order for the system to be changed. People have to realize that there's no way they can win. The financial deck is stacked and the economic deck is stacked against them. They can't survive with compound interest increasing the debt year after year the way it is, making it heavier and heavier to carry. And what is depicted as growth is actually financial and uh, rentier overhead And until people realize that it's a system, they're going to just continue to blame themselves and get depressed. And as you get economies moving into depression, you have suicide rates rising, you have life expectancy shortening, you have disease rising. That's the response that you're seeing to crisis today, and it's too bad. One of the solutions you highlight in your book is this idea of a debt jubilee, But in today's economy, that's highly financialized for people's retirements as well, for 401k investments, retirement funds, pension funds. There is a debt write down. Isn't someone's debt someone else's savings in that sense? Wouldn't it hurt retirement? That's the whole problem, that the debts of the 99% are the savings of the 1%, and they're the people that finance the election campaigns and have regained the control of the government, much like the House of Lords and the landlords had over European governments in the 19th century. So just as there had to be a revolution in the 19th century, there has to be another revolution today to replace the financial lords, the money lords that have played the role that landlords did in the 19th century. There's no way that the debts can be paid without submerging economies in austerity and making them shrink more and more and having a replay of what happened after after Rome with the collapse of the Roman Empire into feudalism. We're in an economy that's moving in many ways into a neo-feudal type of economy, transferring money up to inherited privilege, inherited fortunes, inherited money and inherited property. And unless there's a new kind of classical economic reform movement, you're not going to change this trajectory. How would you advise a politician right now in this current atmosphere, this current political game? How would you advise them? 
I don't think they take any advice I have. The job of the polit- of Obama's to uh, represent Wall Street. I mean, what am I supposed to advise him? How to be a better demagogue? He's already a better demagogue. Well, than you I know, maybe possibly. maybe you had his ear for you. Got to sit down for lunch with him, and you're like, "Hey, Mr. Obama, here's some things I'm thinking about. What what, what would you say to him? You know, aside from like, let's have the cheesecake." Ah. Uh, uh, there's nothing that I could say that he would not get up and walk away from. I could describe wh- what he's done by bringing the Robert Rubin gang into power, by saving Citibank, by protecting the crooks, by appointing people in the Justice Department that refused to throw anybody in jail. This is not going to help his role in history. And he'd just say, I don't care. I've got mine. I'm going to be supported for the rest of my life, just like Bill and Hillary made a lot of speeches. I'm going to make speeches and I'm going to be in a very good condition. He wouldn't care about anything, I'd say. So does it have to be this way? Do financialized economies just have to implode? And and all of these bad ideas that we've been building our economies on, all the misdirection of attention from rent extraction and interest just show how they've destroyed the, the future of human societies? Is that what you see emerging? Well, probably the change is not going to come from the United States because it's pretty locked up here. When I go to China or Russia, I tell them, first of all, you have to adopt a more classical tax policy. If you want to avoid having a real estate bubble, then you have to tax away land rent and other economic rent. You have to make rent the tax base. That way you can remain competitive. You won't have to tax labor. You won't have to reduce living standards. And you'll prevent the increased value of land from being pledged to banks at interest. And you have to make banks into public utilities. Credit creation is like land or air. It's a precondition for production to take place, but it's a choke point. It's a monopoly that society creates. But if banks were organs of public policy, if you take over the insolvent banks like Citibank, then as public policy utilities, they wouldn't have to play the derivatives games. They wouldn't have to make corporate takeover loans or raiders, and they wouldn't have to falsify mortgage documents. I would advise Russia and China or other countries that I go to not to privatize basic utilities because public ownership enables basic services to be provided at cost or on a subsidized basis or freely. That's what made the American economy more competitive. It's what made the German economy more competitive. And you can defray the cost of public infrastructure by basing the tax system on unearned income, economic rent and finance, not on wages. So it doesn't have to be this way. So at the end of the day, as we close out our conversation, you have said many times that the debts that can't be paid won't be paid. And how will they not be paid? How do you see that really happening? That's the big question. There's no question that there's no money to pay the debts. But the question is whether they won't be paid by annulling and repudiating them or by permitting foreclosure to take place when creditors are simply going to take or demand property in lieu of monetary payment. Well, the good way not to pay debts is to default or proclaim a clean slate like Germany's economic miracle in 1948. But the United States has fought against creation of any international court that would adjudicate the ability of national economies to pay their debts. And if such a court is is not created, then the global economy is going to fracture as it's doing today with the BRICS countries. So the U.S. is trying to press for not paying debts by voluntary bankruptcy and selling off property. 
And short of those two ways of not paying debts, economies are going to continue to submit to debt deflation and austerity, and that's going to strip income away from producers and consumers and businesses and government to pay the creditors, and the debt arrears are going to mount up, and you'll have even more foreclosure. So countries will borrow from the IMF, but that's going to get them even deeper in debt. And Wall Street's solution to not being able to pay is to borrow the way out, borrow the interest to pay. That's how they made interest-only mortgages. As long as they could keep inflating an economic bubble, that was going to pay it. But you can't really solve the debt problem by borrowing your way out of debt. You have to end up wiping out the debt and preventing the debt from rising again by imposing a, uh, a tax on economic rent and unproductive or free lunch income. So we've covered a lot of topics today, a lot of really interesting stuff. I wanted to see if there's any other topics that we forgot to cover or anything you wanted to say. Maybe like a positive message to the youth of America today. <laughs> yeah, positive message. <laughs> Well, the positive message is there's going to be a revolution or else you're all going to starve. Take your choice. And that wraps up our interview with Michael Hudson. I don't know, Seth, what do you think about the ways you see in your life of this financial parasite relationship that he's been talking about? Thinking of the financial world as a parasite is a really interesting exercise for me, Justin. Thinking of it as a way which the top elite folks in this country are extracting wealth out of the bottom and middle classes of our country is just fascinating to me. And you can see it happening when you think about it. You look back at the past 10 years and you can see examples of the poor getting poorer and the richer getting richer. And you can see it in the debt of our country. We're, we're talking now in trillions of dollars in debt. When before it was, you know, billions and then before that was millions. We're talking in like tens of trillions of dollars as a number that we're dealing with now. And it's really fascinating to me to even try to think about that much number. Can you even imagine what a trillion dollars looks like? It's mind boggling and it's something that you could never possibly think of with your human brain. Yeah, on my daily basis, uh, a few hundred to a few thousand dollars is a tremendous amount of money. And putting that in perspective with trillions is truly mind-boggling and hard to grasp. But when you think about the focus of our economy over the last 20 years of focusing on raising house prices, increasing wealth in that way for people, it's really increasing the cost of living. And I think in an urban area, especially like Vancouver, where our average home sales price just hit $1.8 million, it's really gutting the way that the community operates. There's 
you know, eight to nine percent of the towers in downtown Vancouver are vacant. And it's because there's lots of these hot money flows that Michael Hudson was talking about that look for ways to kind of stash their cash. And they do it in cities like Vancouver and London and New York. And there's all of these urban real estate areas that just act as pass-throughs for these global money flows. And what that does is it puts these pressures on just day-to-day living for people where it makes things like paying your bills and having a modest lifestyle increasingly a struggle. And it's all driven by what Michael Hudson was talking about, where there's a global elite with huge swaths of money looking for passive income to be able to sustain and drive their lifestyle. And it's this drive for passive income of what he was talking about with classical economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo really analyzed. That's what they meant by free markets. When we hear presidential candidates or politicians say free markets, we always think of that now as like, oh, that's the right saying we need less government. But what Michael Hudson was saying is what those economists meant by free markets was free of rent and free of interest, which is partly government, but it's partly the financial sector too. And it's primarily driven by the financial sector. It's so fascinating for me to reframe the idea of talking about free markets in that way. I think about my office dynamic. I work in an office where there's a lot of people sitting in cubes and working on different projects. And there's different departments who do different parts of our work. And there's definitely people in in some departments who are generating quality work, who are generating quality material that goes out to the client. And then there's other departments that are managing those folks who are making sure that those folks have everything they need and are managing the relationships between those people and the clients. And then there's other people who are managing those people. You know, the way that our economy works feels a lot like that sometimes, where these people on the bottom who are creating this actual product, who are actually putting work together and putting it out. And then as you move up the chain... There's other folks who are not producing anything. They produce literally nothing, but what they're doing is helping the wheels turn. And that kind of passivity goes all the way up until you're making these humongous decisions at the top that really, really affect the people at the bottom with the amount of work that they have to do and the amount of time they have to put into and the amount of products that they're putting out. And it's different dynamics. I mean, you could call it leading a company or you could call it actual work, but the amount of work that you put into the bottom at the top, they're very disproportionate sometimes. And the amount of compensation that goes along with the actual amount of work versus the large decision-making stuff are very disproportionate as well. And I see that in the economy as well. The folks making the trades on Wall Street, the folks making the derivative markets go up and down, the real estate going up and down, those folks are really doing very little work but speculating. You could say it's a lot of work finding the properties and finding the right stocks to speculate on and pushing the markets up and down. But in reality, you're not producing much at all. You're pushing paper around and you're you're charging somebody more money on a piece of real estate based on what the market around them is doing. And these are just made up things. And a lot of what our economy is, is really just made up. It's these figments of our imagination that we're qualifying with amounts of money and we're putting dollar signs next to it and saying, here's how much this idea is worth. And here's how much it is worth now. In 10 years, it's going to be worth this much. By speculating, 
we're not creating anything. We're just saying, oh, this new piece of thing is worth this much now because I say it is and because I can back it up with this other financial mysterious document that I just created. That's a lot how I see the economy working. It's these ways of making money that don't actually create anything. It's sucking it off and making it a part of your imagination that that actually brings you wealth. Well, and that's the the piece of financialization that Michael Hudson is talking about and highlighting. And I would say that, you know, banking and finance is really important to the world. And it's definitely playing an allocating role to sending resources around. But it's been so successful in the 20th century that it's fooled a lot of people into thinking that's really what we need to focus all of our efforts around. And you can only do that for so long until it erodes the kind of stuff that you make and the production of smart people and the production of smart things. And if you're only focusing on allocating stuff around, eventually your base that's giving all that other stuff value is eroding. And I think that's what Michael Hudson is talking about and Das is talking about too, because this divide of inequality is getting so severe and becoming so much of a focus now, and I'm glad it is, but a lot of that stemming from this age of stagnation that Das is referring to, where we could ignore it a little bit and ignore it more when the whole pie was expanding. But now that the pie is having a lot of trouble expanding, we're starting to look at how it's divided up. And that financialization aspect that Michael Hudson's talking about is what's determining that allocative portion of how the pie is being divided. And suddenly, the more we look into it, the more we're thinking, wow, I'm not sure if this is really the way we should do it. Now that we're in 2016, which is a big election year in the United States, it's very common for the right to criticize poorer people for for taking something and not producing anything for society. But it seems like on both sides of the aisle, there's no focus on this dynamic that Michael Hudson is talking about, where there's a huge swath of people at the top who are very much doing that, who are looking at this relationship where they're looking for unearned income and trying to find new opportunities just to finance their lifestyle and to grow their pile of wealth. And that, to me, seems like it's every bit as much of a target as anyone else on any other class should be. That's right, Justin. And I think that the media really has a huge play in this whole system, too. The media is controlled by those folks at the top who are making lots and lots of money. And the media is actually consumed by everyone down the line. And it's very, very interesting to me, especially during this 2016 election, you just brought that up, watching the media play with these candidates, with these folks running for office. And it doesn't matter if it's negative press or if it's positive press. As long as the candidates are being mentioned in the media, it props them up. It gives them standing. It gives them something to work with. Because even being cast in a negative light gives them prominence. Even when the folks who are the biggest demagogues out there are cast in this evil glow, it's still giving them exposure. It's still putting them in the minds and the hearts of people who are watching this show. And even if you have a negative reaction to it, you still see them as prominent figures. And this happens all across the board with every person in the media that we cover. They're given that prominence. They're given that spotlight. They're given that exposure to make their views heard all across the world because of the mouthpiece that is the media. So it is very, very closely 
linked. The media and the financial markets are very, very close. And I think we could probably dedicate a whole episode to talking about the way that the media interacts with the financial markets to itself. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're just talking about how the financial sector is playing this role in in allocating more and more wealth towards the drive for passive income. And a lot of people are choosing to allocate some of their wealth towards the extra environmentalist. We very much appreciate that because at the Extra Environmentalist, we really want to focus on these alternative issues that you won't hear about on MSNBC, in the corporate media, in these kinds of 24-hour news networks that set much of the tone for discussion and play in airports all around the world, (laughs) giving you the headlines that make for water cooler discussions. So thank you to the people who are choosing to send a little bit of money our way to support our efforts to discuss these and provide different types of dialogue for media. And so we wanted to thank Luke in Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks so much, Luke, for listening here in my home city. So we are really grateful for that. We also wanted to thank David out in Boulder, Colorado, for his generous donation. Thank you so very much, David, for listening all the way out in Colorado. Yeah, David, a, a really great friend of the show and someone who is really great to have financial support from as well. We also want to thank Eric in Washington, D.C., who sent in a really generous donation. So thank you so much for that, Eric. Yeah, Eric, really impressed with that donation. Really nice of you to send that along. Thank you so much. We also wanted to thank Paul one of our repeat donors from California. Paul, we cannot do it without our repeat donors. We are so very thankful to have you as part of our team. So thank you so very much. Yeah, thanks so much to Paul, Eric, David, and Luke for their contributions to the show over the last few months. We've been quite slow in putting out content, but in 2015, we recorded very few interviews. And in 2016, we've got a lot of interviews that we're working on. We're talking with high-profile people who have really busy schedules, and so it just takes some time. So we're going to work back up to building the queue of interviews so we can get to a more regular release schedule throughout the year. If you want to hear more Extra Environmentalist episodes, go check out our website. ExtraEnvironmentalist.com has tons of archived episodes, as well as show notes and links to all these wonderful articles and books that we talk about on the show. If you want to check us out on Facebook to join the community discussion, head on over and send us a link of one of your favorite articles that you just read and want to share with the world. If you want to find us on Twitter, Stitcher Radio, and any other podcast aggregation site that that you cherish and find dear to you, because, you know, media is all about sharing and caring. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to episode number 91 of The Extra Environmentalist and many more fun episodes on the way in 2016. With wintertime slowly coming to an end, warm times are ahead, as well as more wonderful Extra Environmentalist episodes. I worry about things, right? You know? Do y'all care about the world? How about that? Let's start there. Three of you? Okay, good. Uh.
uh, I care, I worry about it, right? My, uh, yeah, people are always telling me, Tom, the only way you're ever going to be happy is if you figure out a way to not worry about all the stuff you can't control, which that's stupid advice. That's all I do worry about is the things I can't control. Who worries about the things they can control? What kind of neurotic a-hole are you? You know what I mean? Like, oh, my shoes are untied. What do I do? I gotta get this taken care of. Yeah, I'm not worried if my clothes match. I'm worried about economic collapse. <laughs> That's the stuff that bothers me, right? Is the stuff we all agree on makes me kind of question. Like everybody agrees that the main goal, no matter what party they're in, that growth is the thing. We got to grow and grow the economy and uh, produce and consume more. And we live on a planet of finite resources, so eventually we run into the laws of the universe and then we're screwed, right? The planet's already fighting back. Scary, right? Started a few years ago with the shark attacks and the mosquitoes started giving us encephalitis and the birds got the flu and the cows got mad. Now the peanut butter and the broccoli's after us. <laughs> Yeah, people were dying of heat in the United States last year. How the hell do you die of heat in the United States of America? You open your refrigerator, you jackass. You don't, you don't live in the Sudan. Go to a movie theater. Take a shower. It's like, it's like people that die on train tracks. I feel bad for them and their families, but dude, you're on a train track. There's only one thing to look out for when you're on a train track. Right? Trains aren't exactly sneaking up on people. <laughs> Grounds rumbling. Oh my God, what's that noise? Uh, I don't know. That sounds like a tornado. We better stay right here on the tracks. 